When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. This episode's a bit different. Starting today, the FT is running a three-part Big Read series on Xi Jinping, China's powerful leader, or to give him his proper titles, General Secretary of the Communist Party, President of the People's Republic and Chairman of the Central Military Commission. Since taking over as Communist Party boss in late 2012, Xi has seemingly become the most powerful Chinese leader since the days of Chairman Mao. But how has he achieved this? And more importantly, what is he hoping to use all this power for? And how much of a gamble does his strongman approach represent? I'm James King the FT's Emerging Markets Editor. And with me to discuss this topic is, in the studio, Kerry Brown, Professor of Chinese Studies at King's College London and author of a recent book, CEO China, The Rise of Xi Jinping. And on the phone from Beijing is Tom Mitchell, our Beijing Bureau Chief. Welcome. Tom, could I come to you first, please? Could you give us a sense of how Xi Jinping has managed to accumulate his very considerable hold on power? Hi, James. Yeah, I think... He's done it with what you have to admit has been a very deft mixture of speed, of ruthlessness, and the Chinese Communist Party itself. In terms of speed, it's almost as if he's taking a U.S. presidential first hundred days approach to office, although in his case, you really need to talk about his first year in office Within his first year, he laid out an incredibly ambitious reform document, which basically said, I intend to be a leader that history will remember in the way it remembers Mao Zedong or certainly Deng Xiaoping. The anti-corruption campaign was part of that first year, and that really exemplified the ruthlessness of his approach. Guo Xilai, who was a big political rival of his, his downfall began before she really took power. Within Xi's first year, he was in prison for life. Shortly thereafter, another very senior figure, Zhou Yongkang, and another Xi rival was in prison, the highest-ranking cadre to fall because of the anti-corruption campaign. And then the last element, which I mentioned, is the party itself. The party has always had what it calls leading groups, which are these very secretive entities that are used to formulate and coordinate the implementation of various policies. But they've very much been in the background. However, under Xi, they've really come into the foreground. For example, one group that he created was related to state security. And through that, all of a sudden, as the leader of that group, he has a real say over all aspects of state security, both foreign and domestic. More recently, we've seen the real rise of a party-leading group that looks after financial and economic affairs. 
This is a group that before you never really heard much about it. It was always behind the scenes. But now it is out there front and center, all but giving interviews on the front page of the People's Daily, saying this is the direction of economic policy. And that's an arena which was really always reserved for the premier. And I think in that way, what she is doing is really quite remarkable. And Kerry, could you give us a sense of what you mean by, in your book, a subheading when you call C the new Machiavelli? In what sense is that meant? Well, I think the predominant sense is that he clearly believes that the end justify the means. And you think of what characterizes his period in power so far. I think it's a reversal of the sort of dynamics of the Hu Jintao era. So in the Hu era, you've got after 2012, the sort of idea, the philosophy that you get the economics right and political issues you can kind of deal with one day. You, you've got time. And growth then was fantastic and quadrupling of size of the Chinese economy from 2001 entry to WTO. I mean, a big, big boost of productivity. Whereas under Xi Jinping, you've got a bit of an anomaly where you've got politics in command and a sense that you've got to really deal with the political issues now. You've got to deal with the role of the party in society and it's making one-party rule sustainable. And I think anything that supports the making of one-party rule being sustainable is okay. So you smash up on elite families if you need to. You don't get completely obsessed by GDP growth. You can deal with a more complicated economic position because your priority is basically no matter what, you've got to make one-party rule the thing that wins in the end. So when we talk about Xi Jinping's power, at the heart of it is his relationship with the party and the way in which he, symbiotically with the party, means that there is a stable one-party system at the end, never been achieved before really anywhere in the world. So this is a big, big historic mission that I think he's on. So he's sort of centralised power much more into the hands of the Communist Party itself. But what kind of implications has this had for civil society, the media, the rule of law, some of those other things that China was in fits and starts building up over the last few decades? Xi Jinping's interest is in the party, party building. That's what he's been talking about really since 2012. We don't really know how he got to where he's got to. There's no clarity on exactly how he was chosen to be. From a fairly mediocre provincial background, this leader with seemingly a lot of power around him, I think the fact that he's always been very loyal to the party since the 1990s when he was in Fujian, he talked very consistently about this issue of trust and loyalty to the party. And in 1991, he did an interview with Xinhua where he said, you go into politics not to make money, but to serve the party. Well, of course, at that time, you went into politics precisely to make loads of money. Many, many people do. So I think the narrative that you see really at the moment is Xi Jinping with the anti-corruption struggle and with this party building, making the party a tactical body to get China through this very difficult period where it gets middle income status by 2021, centennial goal, all of these things, but more emotionally incredible and pleasing for Chinese people. It's first moment in modern history where it is going to become a country with status and power that can stand upright in the world. And I think that's really what the predominant strategic objective is. Tom, we've described how Xi Jinping has managed to amass power, but what's all this power for? Does Xi Jinping have a vision or is this just power for power's sake? Well, I agree with what Kerry just said about the party itself being such an important element of his thinking. You have to remember he's the son of a revolutionary communist founder. He lived his entire life within the walls that the party throws up around its own elite members. He has a complete understanding of the internal power dynamics of the Chinese Communist Party. And a lot of cynics will say, well, this is what it's all about. It's just an exercise in preserving one-party rule, the pursuit of power for the sake of power. It, it is, I think, 
also a lot broader than that, a lot of his allies and admirers will say, well, actually, the party is not an end in itself. It's a means to a very important end, that the reform process has now gotten to a point where if the party is not as clean and efficient as it can be, we are not going to be able to achieve the reforms that we need to achieve in order to keep the economy going. I think there's a real sense that the party has to be reformed in order to achieve what they want with the economy. Now, the question is whether you can really achieve reform with what has been such a heavy-handed approach. As one person who's very close to the policy-making process here explained it to me, he said, Deng Xiaoping used to talk about the need to liberate thinking. She talks about the need to unify thinking. He's effectively trying to coerce reform. And can you really coerce reform? And the implications are so broad, just to come back to a little bit of what Kerry was just mentioning, if you think of the impacts on civil society of Xi's approach to power and what he's done, they've been just absolutely devastating. It used to be there were a lot of spheres where people could operate with relative safety. If you were a labor activist and you wanted to help workers organize to secure better paying conditions against a Korean factory boss or a Hong Kong factory boss, you could do that without a sense that the party was going to attack you or see you as a threat. If you were a rights lawyer who was helping even dissidents in, in a trial situation, the party seemed to appreciate that even in political show trials, there's a need for a defense lawyer to be part of this process. But somewhere along the line, people who used to be able to carve out very useful roles in civil society, they themselves have become seen as threats to the party. And as a result, there's been a real contraction here. And I think that probably enhances stability in the short term, but there are questions about what it means for stability in the long term. And Kerry, what would your take on this be? Is C's amassing of power into the hands of the party a means to an end? Is he trying to achieve something really important for China or just trying to sustain his own power base? I think because of the importance of the party and his thinking, for him to get anywhere, he's got to be the loyal servant of the party. And so in a sense, it's not like Mao Zedong, who almost had a kind of separate identity to the Communist Party and took the party on in the Cultural Revolution. It's a leader who, in a sense, has grown up through his life in the party, tried to join the party 10 times in the early 1970s, and is fundamentally dependent on the party for his identity. And I think, what is the power for? Well, this sort of narrative, really, of China having, for the first time ever, this upper hand in modernity in this sort of progress to create a modern country and restore its status and the way that Xi Jinping talks and these grand narratives about China's role in the world. A sort of subliminal criticism of the Hu Jintao era where it was China being low profile and having this sort of dissonance between its very strong economic global role and yet moderate political, you know, diplomatic status in the world. And I think Xi Jinping has been more of a communicator, more able to articulate a stronger Chinese role in the world in a very strange way. I kind of see Xi Jinping as the Donald Trump of China. I think he's an emotional leader and he's allowed more emotion in Chinese politics. In 2010, remember that moment when he said these very critical comments in Mexico City about uh, these foreigners with their big bellies talking about our problems, gave us a glimpse of this leader who's got a more visceral view of the outside world as useful for China when it's useful and not really useful for anything else, but also an anti-elitist member of the elite. He's not a member of the eight core of the immortal families. He's not a Deng. He's not a Chen. He's not a Yang. He's from a Xi sort of clan, which is second rate, you know, not Premier League. Xi Jinping was marginalised from 1962 and was peripherally important from 1980. So in an odd way, he's kind of a very populist, anti-elite leader in the 
anti-corruption struggle has captured that element of anti-elitism in Chinese politics where it's basically bashed up these entrenched big old families and he's positioned himself as a man who's for the street and for the people very effectively. And Tom, does he have uh, Trump-esque characteristics? Yeah, I'm worried about who's going to be more insulted here, she or Trump. <laughs> I think Kerry raises a really important point about Xi's style and how it's so different and how that's an element of the power that he projects. If you are perceived to be powerful, you are powerful. His language is totally different. To listen to his predecessors, John Zemin, Hu Jintao, they were wooden, it was party blather, it was awful. But when she talks, he talks in a way that really resonates. It's like, wow, what he's saying is interesting. I'll always remember his first trip abroad, I believe it was to Kazakhstan, and he was addressing a bunch of university students there. This would have been late 2013, early 2014. And this was the type of speech where Hu Jintao or whoever would have gotten up there and talked about the glorious relationship between our two countries and bored everyone in the audience to sleep. Instead, she got up there and he talked about how visiting Kazakhstan reminded him of when he was in a small village in northwest China at the other end of the Silk Road and talking about the dunes and the, just the atmosphere and immediately drawing a connection between himself and those Kazakhstan students in the audience. And I've never seen a leader do anything like that. He speaks in very emotive terms of we're pursuing a Chinese dream. It's a totally different language. I think he understands that China's evolved to a point where you can't use the same old wooden party language. You really have to articulate ambition and vision, and he's done that very well. So he certainly has a sense of charisma. Just staying with you, Tom, you mentioned a minute ago the distinction between the way uh, Deng used to talk about liberalizing thinking and Xi talks about unifying thinking. And one of the ways he appears to be unifying thinking is behind this very strong nationalist creed. Could you go into that for us, particularly with the background of the South China Sea, where tensions have been rising after the uh, ruling by a tribunal in The Hague recently against some of China's claims, and amid rising tensions with the US in the region too. What is he hoping to achieve by, as it were, banging on this nationalist drum? Well, in a sense, he's inherited this nationalist drum, right? It's been part of the politics of this place for a long time. In some ways, the general public gets further ahead in its nationalism, the government sometimes, and the government has to rein everyone back in. I think one way of understanding this is to go back to the title of Kerry's book and she as CEO of China. Think about what his balance sheet is. He's trying to do something very difficult, put through a lot of really difficult economic reforms that are going to be very painful. That's the stated ambition. Mills are going to close. People are going to lose their jobs. So he needs to accrue political capital that allows him to do that. The anti-corruption campaign is hugely important on the other side of the balance sheet because it's so popular. It's obviously very dangerous for him, but it's very popular. The other thing that is really, really popular is nationalism. And by asserting China's nationalist claims and saying, we're not going to hide our light under a bushel anymore, which is how Deng used to describe it, but we're really going to go out and say, Scarborough Shoal is ours and we don't care what an international tribunal thinks. That is incredibly popular with people who otherwise really have no time or interest in the party here. And so it's part of a larger equation. Think of it as a really important part of his overall balance sheet. And Kerry, how much of a gamble do you think this is for Xi Jinping and for China's future? I mean, this shift towards a much more charismatic, strongman type of leadership. 
the interesting thing, going from what you were saying earlier, is is Xi Jinping's power real? What do we mean by real power? Deng Xiaoping basically reset the whole ideological formation of China from state domination of the economy, non-acceptance of foreign capital before, under Mao, non-acceptance of a non-state sector. Deng Xiaoping changed all of that. And we're still living in the Deng era in a way. Has Xi Jinping really recast the political landscape of China? He has made it sound and look and feel different. That's true. But has he really effectively and profoundly changed the whole political template? I would say not. If he wanted to do that, the one space he can move into is political reform. And we have no sign that he's going to do that. In fact, on the contrary, they've said very clearly they don't want to do that. So there's this sort of haunting issue of, are we looking at a counterfeit powerful man here? We are banking a lot on this guy, actually, with the enormous level of instability in the world at the moment. In a very strange way, Xi Jinping's stable hold on power matters to us in ways probably that weren't even true three or four years ago. One of the standpoints really of China's development in the last 35 years is it's parasitical on the stability around it because it's got so much instability within itself and it wants a benign international environment. Since 1979 it's only had one conflict with Vietnam, that's all. A powerful China economically has been a China that doesn't want to get militarily involved. And now we're looking at this position where the world outside is not stable, is not benign. The EU is in disarray. America looks like it's very unstable at the moment, all sorts of issues. And suddenly Xi Jinping becomes hugely geopolitically important in ways he probably didn't want to. We're going to see pretty soon, I think, especially with the Party Congress next year, beyond that, whether this man is for real. And that means that he's got to not just start talking about initiatives, but really effectively implementing things. This has been a Xi Jinping power of promise, but now we need a Xi Jinping of performance and performing and implementing. Tom, let me come back to you for the last word. Kerry's raised a very important point there, that the premium on Xi Jinping and China being a stable element in a rather unsettled global environment is obviously very great. So the question to you to finish with is, China looks very strong and Xi looks very strong, but how stable is he and how stable, therefore, is China? I think fundamentally, it is in many ways a very unstable place. We see explosions of unrest all the time. And this has been a feature of China going back many decades now. But these events happen more and more frequently. But I suppose before he came to power, she and the party have always been very good at basically making sure that you have all these vertical explosions, these little volcanoes going off everywhere. But they're really able to clamp down on any horizontal networking. Whenever a force like that, whether it's Falun Gong or a labor union, tries to unite horizontally across the country, they come down on that very, very hard. So it's really quite a delicate balancing act that they're engaged in. I absolutely agree that China appears stable, but there's a lot of instability underneath. And to come back to Kerry's point, you talk about, well, what has he really changed? When you push his advisors on that, he said, yeah, okay, progress is has been frustrating, especially on the economy, but just wait for our second term, as it were. And Deng accomplished and changed much more as it stands now. Xi Jinping is no Deng Xiaoping, but he certainly aspires to be one. Thank you very much to Tom on the phone from Beijing. And When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. 
Kerry here in our studio.